VC is a very independent job. So there's nobody on top of you every day that's telling you, this is what you need to do, do this, like this, and this. Obviously, they, those happen. You'll get assignments, you'll do them and whatnot. But uh, essentially, most of your days are yours. And so you get to decide like, okay, where do you want to spend your time? How do you want? And what's nice is for me is, you know, there are days where, you know, an hour for lunch, I'll spend it reading about the stock market or investing or, you know, watch an interview with like a really interesting person. And because like, I'm very fortunate because I have the time to do that, right? So like, I'm not in a clinic. I don't have notes to do. I don't have somebody like saying, you got to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so that's what's, that's what's really nice about, I think my role is that I like is it is very different. It is varied across the spectrum. You also have to be very multifaceted. Like, you know, I have to be able to have conversations. I have to be able to write reports. I have to be able to, you know, talk to people. Like I have to be able to do all of that. Um, and that's what also I, I really enjoy because you're kind of, and, and also you touch a lot of different areas, right? So like you have to VC, one of the things that everybody talks about too, is like, you're not a specialist in one specific area, but you have to learn how to learn quickly. What would you do if you did six years of med school only to not be able to become a doctor? My name is Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare for the better. This time around, we rejoin a conversation with Anish Kaushal, venture capitalist and medical graduate who has much to say about his up and down journey. Let's get started. You've been in VC for how many years now? So four, four years, four years. Okay. Yeah. And you said that you flew to Vancouver uh, recently for yeah. a meeting and then you came yeah. back and you had more events. So yeah. again, as I said in the beginning, the life of an investment analyst seems to be more than just as you alluded to before, reading papers and summarizing data, et cetera. What yeah. is the life of an investment analyst? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I would say that you would get a different answer depending on who you speak to. Um, and so it, it depends, like, I, I hate this because it's also the truth, but the, the favorite answer of every VC is always, it depends, because there's like so many circumstances where, you know, I could say this and this and that. And so, so I'll give you an example. So I can tell you about my role at Amplitude versus my role at M Ventures, because it was essentially the same like title, um, but like, you know, very different. So when I went to M Ventures, when I first started was, it was a bigger organization. There was many more people. Processes were there. It had existed for 10 years. And so you go in and it's very defined. So it's like, you know, we need you to analyze oncology companies. That's your job. And so you come in, you know, there's 10 pitch decks that get sent to me. I take a look at them. I come up with a thesis and like why it's interesting or not. I present it to my supervisors. They say yes or no. We get on a call. I take notes, continue to work on it, see if it goes anywhere or not. Um, so that, that was like very structured, very defined. When I came to Canada and Amplitude, it was very different because we were starting the firm. And so I actually got to build a lot of the processes and operations. So like our deal flow system, I'm responsible for, like all of our social media for a long time, I was responsible for. Our marketing, I do a lot of. We, I would write a blog that we do with Amplitude. Um, I also do, I, at the beginning, I helped a lot with reporting and operations on the back end. So like, you know, if we needed presentations done or, you know, if our CFO, like every quarter we have to send updates to our investors, so like they, the updates get sent to me to like update every company. So like I have to be in tune with everything that's going on essentially across our portfolio. Um, and so, you know, going to your point about, you know, looking at papers and doing review, I still do that too, right? So if a company comes in, I still put on a deal or, 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 you know, looking at a company, I still have to go and analyze and do competition and market and assessment and question lists and, you know, data rooms and all of that. Um, and then also do a bit more on the uh, fun, uh, fundraising side. So like preparing data rooms, preparing presentations, talking to investors, um, talking to fellow co-investors. And so to your point that, you know, the question about being at these events, what's great now about co like post COVID is now events are starting to happen in person. So like getting back out there, like for example, a VC group here in Toronto had their annual um, sort of annual day, uh, sort of annual event last night. And so you show up, you're meeting all these other investors, you're talking to people. Um, and so, so yeah, it, it kind of, it's, it's kind of all encompassing. And that's also why I love what I do is because every day is very different. 
Um, and, and what also is great is like, I get to set my own schedule. So, you know, we're, VC is a very independent job. So there's nobody on top of you every day that's telling you this is what you need to do, do this, like this, and this. Obviously they, those happen, you'll get assignments, you'll do them and whatnot, but essentially most of your days are yours. And so you get to decide like, okay, where do you want to spend your time? How do you want, and what's nice is for me is, you know, there are days where, you know, an hour for lunch, I'll spend it reading about the stock market or investing, or, you know, watch an interview with like a really interesting person. And because like, I'm very fortunate because I have the time to do that, right? So like, I'm not in a clinic. I don't have notes to do. I don't have somebody like saying, you got to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so that's what's, that's what's really nice about, I think my role is that I like is it is very different. It is varied across the spectrum. You also have to be very multifaceted. Like, you know, I have to be able to have conversations. I have to be able to write reports. I have to be able to, you know, talk to people. Like I have to be able to do all of that. Um, and that's what also I, I really enjoy because you're kind of, and, and also you touch a lot of different areas, right? So like you have to VC, one of the things that everybody talks about too, is like, you're not a specialist in one specific area, but you have to learn how to learn quickly. Um, and that was actually one of the best advice I got from my first boss when I first joined. And he said, like, you know, we don't have to know everything as a VC at all, but you have to know how to learn very quickly. Um, and so that's, that I think is what I've been trying to refine over the last few years. Uh, but yeah, again, like you said, very invest as an investment analyst, it's, uh, it's kind of all over the board. Mm -hmm. How do you learn to learn quickly? I think that's something that's actually pretty, pretty relevant skill, regardless of whether or not you're in medicine or whether or not mm -hmm. you're in, you're in VC. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I, one, you have to have a curiosity. I think like that's the other thing. And you have to always be like thinking that, you know, there's more to learn and there's more to know. And even if I know a little bit about a thing, like the, I can still learn something. Because I think if you come in or if you go into an area and you're like, oh, I already know this or I've heard about this before, I've done that. Like you're, it's not going to work because like you're just going to limit yourself. You're not going to be interested. Um, I think also like the ability to read, like, you know, you have to be able to want to read like very interesting things and also across subject areas, um, which is just, again, going back to this curiosity point. And then generally, like Google is your best friend. Like, I, like it's funny because sometimes people ask you questions. Like I'll get on conversations with people and be like, hey, you know, what about this? Or I have this question. And in my head, I'm like, literally, you could Google this in two seconds. You'd get an answer very quickly. Then you could go in, you could like learn from different people. And, and like, you know, you could come back with a much more refined thing. So I think a lot of it is just like, you know, also to your point of like where to find the information, right? So like for me, if I get a specific ask, it's like, okay, how do I, like based on the information I have, how do I know where to go? And like, where, where's the best answer? Like, where can I get the best thing? So I think a lot of it's just like, yeah, knowing the resources you have access to and the people you have access to, and then also just being interested, like genuinely interested in like a lot of things. And that's the thing for me is like, I'm, I literally am happy to learn about everything and anything. Um, and that's what makes it fun. Cause like, I have no problem, like being a beginner in like a new subject area. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the characteristics that you, uh, talked about there, knowing your resources, knowing your limitations, being willing to go find information, asking questions, uh, where, or, or being willing to dig for information where others haven't necessarily been willing to dig for. A lot of that sounds like there's a big crossover between venture capital um, or how that skill set is applied in venture capital to how that skill set is applied in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like, what are the main takeaways that you have or that you've had or uh, noticed when it comes to overlapping skill sets otherwise between what you've learned at St. Andrews versus yeah. what you've learned or what you've applied in your job now? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think for me, the one that I didn't realize the value of at the time, but is actually so vital was the ability to do research. So exactly like you said, where, you know, like when you're in medicine and you want to do research, I remember I like did not like it. I hated it. I was like, oh, this is like boring. Like, oh my God, like I got to write this paper and I got to, you know, go on PubMed to find these hundred articles. And oh, are you kidding me? And like genuinely, like that is what I do now. And that is like such a valuable skill set. Like 
being able to critically assess papers, being able to read, be able to like find the information you want to. How do you look at bibliography to get notes from certain things? Like those kind, like that skill in particular to me is like, was the transferable one that like genuinely set me up. Like if I didn't do research and if I didn't actually put in the time, I know one, I wouldn't have gotten this job likely, but two, I wouldn't have been able to continue now as is because like that skill being able to learn, being able to exactly like you said, find the information, knowing where to go, knowing how to do that. Like it's a skill set that you like I, I, for me, like I didn't want to do, like I didn't like it in medicine. You know what I mean? I was like, this is not great. I don't enjoy this. But now for my job, like it is why I got what I got and why I'm kind of here today. So I think that that to me is like the biggest one. I think also like, I mean, what's nice about St. Andrews that we are lucky for is, and a lot of medical schools, I don't think do a very good job of this is communication skills. So, you know, you don't get taught a class in med school, like how to talk to people. Um, but we fortunately in St. Andrews, they li we literally had lectures and seminars on communication. Like how do you effectively communicate? How are you interested? Which again, is very counterintuitive, you would think, because you're like, oh, talking to people is talking to people, it's easy. But you and I both know enough doctors that, you know, their communication skills aren't the best. Um, and social skills sometimes black. Uh, uh, and so, so like that kind of stuff, you know, um, is, is actually really important. Like I can now, I know I can talk to anybody in the world about any kind of conversation and I'll be okay with that. Um, and like be able to kind of develop that, like those kinds of things, like almost like the soft skills that everybody kind of talks about. Uh, those are like so important to, to kind of what I do today. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So, I mean, talking about the cross applicability or I, I guess the, the interaction between your, your MD world, um, as well as the world that you're in now, um, I, I guess the framing this question, there's been, I guess th there's been a longstanding association or negative, I guess, association between the, the words like, you know, uh, finance industry or insurance, mm -hmm. uh, in healthcare. Um, uh, given that, um, do you believe it's like inherently a contradiction to go to school to become an MD, then take the Hippocratic oath to do no harm to patients, to only do good. And then to mm -hmm. go to the finance industry for a job, like, is that a contradiction or? If there's some way that you think of it that, uh, I guess, makes you believe that what you're doing makes a greater impact on patients now than you would otherwise. Yes. So I can argue both sides. And I've thought about this a lot. And I think that's important. So I would say, yes, it is a contradiction because exactly like you said, like sometimes I feel like I'm in an industry where, you know, you're you're participating in the profit of like particularly, you know, pharma, drug pricing, like price gouging, like I, I am a part of that industry, whether that's good or bad, I'm a part of it. And I know like, even if I'm not, even if I'm not like at the actual company and actually developing the drug, I know our industry is part of that. And like, we have to deal with that. So I, I, I'm not going to say like, that's like, I can't do that. At the same time, I know that one, me personally, I know my skill set. I, as a doctor, I'm just like anybody else. And I think the individual, like you can get one-on-one -on -one, um, sort of gratification because you can, you know, solve a person's issue in front of you. You do really well by them. That's really nice to, to see. And and you know why you everybody kind of gets in at the beginning. Oh, I want to help people. Of course you do. Um, and so for me, like what I, I think I realize now is like, you know, there are people that are doing this anyway. This job in terms of like finance, in terms of like financing all these healthcare things, and a lot of them don't have clinical backgrounds. Like, like honestly, most of them are not doctors, right? Like they're engineers or they're scientists or they think, but they haven't been in a hospital. They haven't been in a clinic. They haven't treated patients before. And so to me, when I left, I was like, okay, well, I think having that knowledge of like actually being in, in like having a clinical background is useful when you're assessing and financing opportunities. Because like, I actually know, is this going to be useful or not? Right? Like, and like, uh, for example, like, you know, we talked about health tech. Health tech is a great example. You have a lot of technology people that are software guys or engineers or whatever. And they come in, they're like, oh, healthcare, easy. We can do that. Here's an app that like, you know, does five things. And oh, you can plug it in and it's so easy to use. And oh, like, it's, it's no problem. 
And I always look at it knowing doctors and also like being in clinics, um, doctors don't like new technology and they don't like new things. And, or maybe some do, most don't. Um, and also processes and the way they operate and the way they you, like, work, like do their work, like their workflow, they do it their entire career. So if they learned a certain way to do certain things, trying to switch them is very difficult. Um, and so for me, that's why like, you know, this, this concept of when I left was I could apply my knowledge to actually help these companies and figure out what was, what are good investments? What are things that I think could be useful? Um, but then also too, to your point, it is the broader impacts question, right? Where like, if I, if I am sitting in a, in a community and I'm a family doctor and I have my thousand patients on my roster and I benefit them, that's great. And I think that's important. And I, and I love that. But if I can finance five companies that develop five different drugs that target a million patients or develop or, or, or finance a company that's doing like a, a medical device that is touching people that are having strokes, that is way bigger because then you're actually like a part of something that like touches many more people's lives. And so to me, that's also a big part of like why I, I love what I do is because like, you know, down the road, touch wood, eventually the goal is to finance the companies that are the next, are the future and next wave. Obviously we don't know, things can happen, things can change. And that's why we get into VC. And that's why I do what they do at the early stages because we're in a risk business. So I totally get it. Um, but to me like that, that becomes, that makes it really interesting um, and, and important. Um, and so that's why like, I think like I, I'm very grateful for having that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, just kind of being part of this, be able to use my clinical knowledge to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, there's that applicability of clinical knowledge, but another, I guess, contradiction between medicine and venture capital is the risk tolerance, as you alluded to. Um, there's the risk tolerance, uh, in medicine specifically, that is pretty low in terms of yep. being, uh, I, I guess, wanting to avoid risk to patients as much as possible. Whereas in venture capital, you're kind of shooting for the stars. You're assessing yep. risks as much as you can, but you're still shooting for the stars in trying to, you know, finance a company, which you know has a fairly high chance of failing in yep. competition with all the other products out there, or that might fail in clinical trial number three. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so, so in terms, so in terms of your question, I guess, is it more just like, how do you think about risk? Like in terms of the, the physician? Yeah. How, how is your, how is your, yeah. How is your risk, risk tolerance changed? Or how do you, do you, do you toggle between like thinking like a physician versus thinking like someone in VC or uh, have yeah. you just adapted more to a VC, like, you know, thinking style? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say both in the sense that I think when I initially came, obviously you have the conservatism in you. And I think even today, there's still like the way I assess companies is still with a clinical lens. So I'm always thinking like, is this useful in a clinic? Is somebody going to use this? Is this useful to like, you know, what are side effects? What's the tolerability? What's the dosing? Like stuff that a scientist or an engineer is not really going to think about. It's like, oh, we have a trial. Like, oh, it's fine. It's like, no, no, there's like many layers to like, how do you design it? What are you looking for? What are the endpoints? How does it actually affect the patient? Like, what is the difference in regulatory, like the regulatory endpoint versus the clinical endpoint that's actually meaningful. So all these things are still important. But at the same time, I'm also in the risk business. Like VC, exactly like you said, right? We have to take bets on the future, knowing that a lot of what we do will fail. Like we know that, that that's, that's why you do what we do. Um, but at the same time, if you get the success, the upside is so great that it's worth it because you get to like, you get to see it actually prove out to be true. And like the best example is, is not one I've been a part of like in, in sort of my career, cause it, it sort of predates me, but you know, my, our firm finance this company called Clementia Pharmaceuticals, where this, you know, this incredible woman came to uh, one of our partners and said, Hey, like I saw this uh, research paper about this asset that exists at a pharma company, but I think it can be applied to a rare disease. Like, can we like, you know, finance a company and like, see if we can raise some money and go thing. 
So he was the first check in. I think it was like like whatever, 500 grand to a million bucks. I put the money in, eventually built the company, went through clinical trials, got to phase three. Now that drug is approved in Canada for FOP. And this, this, uh, this female raised the team, raised the company thing. She got a $1.3 billion exit, right? For Jeez. what her, what she did. And so, yeah, of course, as you mentioned, you know, it could fail at many moments. And of course, there's lo- lots of times where, you know, things didn't look great. But when you have the success and when you have the, the outcome, one, you actually have a drug that's in patients' lives today. Like people in Canada that have this bone disease, it's called FOP, um, have access to this drug that they never had before, which is incredible from a patient perspective. And then from an investor perspective, that return is unbelievable, right? So even if you had all these failures that you invested in, if you get a couple of those, it's still worth it. Um, and so that's kind of how I think about it from that, the risk lens, right? Which is like, we're in the risk business. You have to take this. I also think from like, from a, like personally, like I, I'm very fortunate because like, I also like my career is a risk career. Like I took risks when people thought I was kind of nuts. Like everybody, like when I, when I moved to, moved to Scotland at 17, people like, ah, oh, that seems kind of crazy. It's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> and then when I left medicine, people like, seems kind of crazy. I'm like, yeah, it is too. And then it's go to Amsterdam and it's comes with like, so like, I, I think my, my life has been a bit like I've taken calculated risks at many times and I've been very fortunate touch wood so far. Right. And so my thing is like, if I can keep taking asymmetric risk and calculated risks again and again, then it increases your chance of success. Because if you increase your chance of failure, then your chance of success goes up as well. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just as a spinoff of the question, you've done like med school and you've done research, you've done plenty of clinical and research related experience in medicine, but what you haven't done is residency and Mm -hmm. like the decades long immersion that a lot of attendings have. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how many attending physicians have gone on to go into VC roles themselves. Mm-hmm. But one of the criticisms that someone might have of your stance in terms of medicine or an MD in VC is that you're, you, you don't have like that yeah. long standing clinical experience. Yes, would you ever go true. back? Would you ever go back to medicine to, you know, refine your experience and see how things have changed? Or are you happy where you are now? Or how would you address that criticism itself? Yeah. So, so I think it's totally fair. I think it's accurate. I think it's true. But I also think for me, it's, I, I don't think that I necessarily need that 10 year decade of experience because I think I can speak the same language and because I think I can get the same information and I can talk to the same people that actually have the knowledge and experience, that's more important. And it goes back to the thing before about like learning how to learn, right? Like I know now, like how to find the answers that are much more important versus let's say you took a resident or, or a person that's an attending has 10 years of, of clinical experience in one thing and you bring them into VC, they are a fish out of water. They have no idea what to look for. They have no idea what to do. They're not really sure how to ask questions. Yeah, they're very good at their job and they're very good at what they've done but they might not, they don't understand the lingo and how to ask certain questions and where to get the information. So to me, like that's, that's one, I would say. Um, to your second question about like, you know, would I ever go back? Like it's never, never been on the cards and I, I wouldn't, I'm too far removed from that. I think I would always, I would always think about like, you know, like how do I, how do I keep updated with like clinical, like trial stuff? Then, you know, if I get like courses in terms of like understanding, like, you know, are there courses to keep up to date with like, what sort of like, what's the latest that's kind of happening. But also at the same time, I feel very fortunate because all of my friends are doctors and like I have doctors in my family and I have like physicians that I can contact. So like if I need a question or if I need to know something quickly, I literally can call up a friend and be like, hey, like, what do you think? Or what's the answer to this? And like, so to me, like, again, learning how to learn and learning, you know, this idea of where to get the answers. I have so many resources that for me, I can get the answers to these questions pretty easily. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's a valid question. And I think you're right. Like, I'm, I, I'm not hiding anything. Like, 
I didn't do residency. So I'm not as qualified as, you know, somebody who's an oncologist and been in a, in a hospital for a decade. I absolutely know that. But I also know, like, I have four years of venture experience and I'm still really young. Um, and I think that, you know, has to count for something. So, um, yeah. That's fair enough. And thank you for answering that question really candidly. I know that, like, it can be really easy to, I mean, take offense to that. So, oh, no, again, I don't take offense to no, that. No, no, <laughs> Thanks for answering that. Um, yeah. I guess just to start wrapping up this conversation, uh, which health tech trends have you seen that you're paying the most attention to now and why? Yeah, so so health tech. Uh, so I guess uh, let me let me keep that on the sort of device and the uh, on, okay. uh, on digital health side. Well, more on that side than the, the biotech side, because biotech side, like it's it's very vast, and massive, and there's many different. Um, so on the on the mental and device and things side, I think like a couple that are, like so liquid biopsies coming up a lot that I think is pretty interesting. I think I'm still skeptical as to the real use cases, just because some of the sensitivity and specificity of some of these tests is not that great. And so, like for example, like you know, there's a company called Grail. Uh, that's in the US where, you know, you get your blood test and like, oh, you have cancer because of X, Y, and Z. And right now, because of sensitivity and specificity aren't great, like imagine like I tell you, oh, the test says you have cancer and then you have to do biopsies, you have to do imaging, you have to do all these things. And then it turns out you don't, right? Harm, and you spent all yeah, that's harm exactly. done. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so like that, that is stuff where I think it's getting better and I think it's interesting. The, also the reimbursement challenges on that are a little difficult. So like, you know, we're, we're still, it's still kind of early, I would say. Um, on the device side, like non-invasive monitoring, I think right now is a really big thing that's happening, right? Like, you know, the patches that people are doing, like, you know, having an Apple Watch where you can do an EKG, like on your thing, like able to assess, like, you know, a lot of devices that be able to essentially give you insight that you never had before. Like, for example, I was talking to a digital health DC yesterday. He was telling me about, you know, a non-invasive way to measure uh, potassium. So like for dialysis patients, like they essentially have like this patch that can measure potassium pretty well. I'm like, oh, that's actually really interesting. Right? Like there are clearly use cases for that where, you know, I don't have to get the same kind of information that I, I had to sort of before. Um, so th those are stuff that I think is really cool. Um, on the device, on the digital side, I think like digital therapeutics is one that I'm always paying attention to. I think is really interesting. Like, like, you know, there's a company called Achilles Bio that actually M Ventures was a, was a funder of uh, many years ago when I was there. And now I think went public recently actually by a SPAC where their treatment is a video game. Like the treatment for ADHD is a video game. Like that, and it's, and it's, it's FDA approved. It went through clinical trials. It went through randomized control testing. And like, think about that concept. Just like, imagine like, instead of giving a, a kid like a, you know, at like Ritalin or like, you know, uh, essentially a, um, what called, uh, an amphetamine. A stimulant. Like, yeah. Exactly. A stimulant. Like you have them play a video game and like the results are pretty good. Like that's pretty cool. Right. And so like you're having these, um, sort of a lot of companies called, like in the digital therapeutic space, particularly I think also on the chronic disease side, like the diabetes, the heart disease, the congestive heart failure, um, you know, hypertension, where like if you can intervene where it's like non-invasive, you can do it on an app or phone or digitally. Um, and also like the doctor and patient both has access to good information. That becomes really cool because then you can actually see like, you know, the minor lifestyle changes where you get updates or reminders, or you have an app that's actually like FDA tested, approved, been through trials, can see like, how does it compare to like what's currently existing? Um, like that stuff to me is really interesting. So I think like, and, and also the reason for that as well is like, you know, it's not drugs. There's no side effects. There's no, you know, you're not putting toxicity in your body. You don't have to worry about overdosing. And like, you know, how does it interact with all these other things? It's like, if I can have an app that can treat my thing just as much, um, that becomes really interesting too. Um, and I think also, especially on like the mental health side, like I think there's a lot of interesting use cases around like addiction, depression, anxiety. Um, I still... You know, I'm still hesitant because you still have a lot of the like wellness apps. You have the calms of the world. You have the headspace of the world. And like the data is pretty, um, we, well, we just don't know, you know, in terms of like they haven't been through trials to see like, is this actually improving or not? And so I'm always skeptical because 
anytime somebody tells you like, oh yeah, this is like doctor recommended and like, this is a good thing. It's like, well, it hasn't been to a trial and it's not FDA approved. So like, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. I think it's great. I, I'm, you know, I would recommend it for everybody and I use it too. But, but to say that it's like an actual intervention is a little different. So the digital therapeutic side where there's are actual interventions that have gone through trials that are FDA approved, those are really, really interesting because they're essentially new medicines that are completely digital, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, I would say those are a couple of the ones that like thinking about paying attention to that like kind of interested in. That's super awesome. I guess just to wrap up, um, I always ask our guests whether or not they have any pluggables to plug. I know you've got your website in terms of the things that you write. Anything else yeah. that you like that, that, that you're doing that you like to share? Yeah, I mean, I like so the website, like if you want to find more about what we do, like from a firm perspective, the website's amplitudebc.com. You can take a look at what we do, mostly biotech stuff. So if you want to take a look at what's going on, personally, like, yeah, exactly. Like you said, Jeff, so like the website is, is essentially like, it's, it was a, it's essentially a mini project that I started a couple of years ago. So like when I left medicine, I realized I had all this time on my hands because I wasn't doing research. I wasn't hanging out with friends. I wasn't like, you know, worried about and stressed out about all this other stuff that every doctor has to do. Writing notes. notes. Exactly. <laughs> writing notes. Uh, and so, so essentially what, what, it's funny you did that because I was essentially, what I decided to do is instead was I just started reading and writing. Um, so started like reading, reading nonfiction books and writing in the journal. And that turned into um, much larger than I thought. So in the last like four years, I think I've read like 225 nonfiction books and taken notes on almost all of them. Um, and then also written like maybe hundreds of blog posts on top of that as well, just about my life, what's going on, what I see in the world, what's happening. And so, so yeah, like that, that's just, it's a personal project I've been working on for many years. I finally like, you know, the website's there, got it redesigned this summer. All the information is there and available, which is great. Um, but yeah, other than that, like that's, uh, yeah, I think those are the only two things I would say of uh, where else to find more information. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to thank this you. episode of How It's Met. And thanks, Anish. Uh, Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.